The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Wow, cool, a bag. You like it? Hello, I'm a girl, it's a purse. Not just a purse, it's a Birkin bag. I went to school with a guy named Birkin. I don't think this is the same Birkin. Oh. Rory Gilmore may not have known about the ultimate status symbol, but her grandmother did. Oh my God, a Birkin bag. You've heard of it? Of course. That's a very nice purse. Oh, maybe I shouldn't use it. Oh, no. A Birkin bag is meant to be used and seen. I had no idea. Well, well, well. A Birkin bag. A Birkin bag. A Birkin bag for Rory. Grandma. The iconic Birkin bags range in price from 12000 to more than $300,000. And there's a six-year waiting list to purchase one. So luxury brand Hermes went to trial to protect its right to the valuable Birkin trademark against a digital artist who started selling meta-Birkin NFTs, digital images depicting the Birkin but covered in colorful, cartoonish fur. The artist, Mason Rothschild, claimed the meta-Birkins were artworks protected by the First Amendment. But a Manhattan jury disagreed and found for Hermes. Here to look behind the verdict is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. The jury found him guilty of trademark infringement, dilution, and cyber squatting. Do we know what test they used in order to come to that? Well, the judge specifically asked them, the jury, to determine whether or not the meta-Birkins produced by Mr. Rothschild were artistic works or consumer products. And they answered that question saying that they did not view them as artwork, they viewed them as consumer products. And so we have to assume that they at least considered the Rogers test because one of the requirements of the Rogers test is that it be an expressive work, i.e. an artistic work. It would have been rejected out of hand, that test. So there's this blurry line between art and commercial products. So the jury determined that NFTs are more akin to commercial products. Does that have any impact on future cases? Not really. The finding of the jury is a fact finding. Uh, Legal findings are left to the judge, to the court. The jury only makes fact findings. And the factual circumstances change from case to case. This is particularly true in trademark law where you can have widely different facts producing widely different results. So that finding by the jury is limited to this specific case against Mr. Rothschild. Rothschild had argued that his NFTs are works of art protected by the First Amendment, no different from Andy Warhol's famous silkscreen prints of Campbell's soup cans. How did that argument take a hit when the judge made a ruling right at the beginning of the trial? So before uh, opening arguments even commenced as part of a pretrial set of rulings, the judge barred testimony from the defendant, Mr. Rothschild's expert witness, who uh, is an art critic 
and proposed coming before the jury and testifying that the metaburkins created by Mr. Rothschild were no different than the Campbell Soup painting that is now literally iconic in American artwork from the 1960s. And so being unable to present that testimony from their expert art critic really hamstrung the defense throughout the case. So people have been looking at this as a case that had the potential to clarify how trademark law applies to NFTs. Does it do that? Well, I I don't think a single case, unless it happens to be in front of the Supreme Court, is going to clarify the law in this area. What this case does do is lay down a marker on behalf of trademark owners. It points in the direction of findings that the metaverse is subject to the Lanham Act, the U.S. trademark laws, and it will encourage other trademark owners to now bring suits to enforce their rights in the metaverse. I am aware of two clients of ours who have been thinking of bringing lawsuits and simply waiting to see how this came out. This will encourage them. Now, the other thing this case does is it lays the foundation for appellate decisions. So now there is a concrete verdict in a case that can go up on appeal, and we can see what the appellate courts think of the application trademark laws to NFTs. Yeah, so Rothschild said, what happened today was wrong. What happened today will continue to happen if we don't continue to fight. This is far from over. And his attorneys said that they will appeal. They'll take every legal avenue that they have. What are the legal avenues that they have? So the very first option that the defense has here is to file a motion with Judge Rakoff asking him to set aside the jury verdict and to grant judgment to the defense on the um, legal theories that are presented in the case. This is going to be challenging for the defense. It's something they will do, they have to do, but Judge Rakoff basically said at the motion to dismiss stage that he was uncertain as to whether or not there was sufficient factual predicate here for the defendant to take advantage of the so-called Rogers test. And he wanted the jury to give him some advice on that. And the jury gave him advice. <laughs> they said, yes, yes, there's not a factual predicate here. This is not an expressive work. It's not art. It's a consumer product. And the Rogers test does not apply to consumer products, at least so we think. The Rogers test, which was from out of this court, the Second Circuit, expressly says that a First Amendment protection extends to the use of celebrity names in expressive works where the use of the name is relevant to the work and it's not intentionally misleading. And here, that key element that the jury says is missing is whether or not this is an artistic work. So I think they will lose the post-trial motion unless he wants to simply disregard the jury, and they'll take it up then on appeal to the Second Circuit. And this becomes pretty important because the Second Circuit is the author of the Rogers test, which the defense heavily relies upon here. It is also one of the most important appellate courts in the nation with respect to trademark law. And that's where we will really get some guidance going forward into the future. The Second Circuit affirms the verdict here and says, yes, this was trademark infringement. That's going to really be very influential across the rest of the United States, even though the Second Circuit's purview is limited to, to New York and Connecticut. 
And the Supreme Court, as we've discussed, is deciding a case involving Jack Daniels' trademark. How might that affect this decision? So in my view, that has always been the 800-pound gorilla in the room that people have tended to ignore here, particularly the judge. The Supreme Court accepted certiorari in the Jack Daniels case back in November. In that case, the Rogers test is squarely presented to the Supreme Court as to whether it is a legitimate test, whether it really exists. Because remember, Second Circuit made that up out of whole cloth. It's not in the trademark laws. It's not statutory. It's judge-made law. And the Supreme Court might say, well, there is no such thing in the the trademark laws. Or the Supreme Court could say, yes, we have to have such a uh, test as the Rogers test in order to protect First Amendment interests in the trademark field. But we don't like the way the Second Circuit works the test. Our test will be, and then they'll explain what it is. Or they could simply say, you know, Rogers test is a great idea. It really protects First Amendment interests. It works perfectly fine. We're going to narrowly cabinet to protection of celebrity names used in artistic works. Or they may expand it and say we're going to expand it to expressive works more generally. But so with all those question marks hanging over this case, it really made no sense to try it, in my view, other than to say you're moving your docket of cases down the road because the whole thing could be tossed out by a decision of the Supreme Court, and there might have to be a do-over. Forgetting the Supreme Court for a minute in the Second Circuit, does this jury verdict stand for the proposition that NFTs cannot be artwork protected by the First Amendment, or is it fact-specific? I think it's too fact-specific to come to that conclusion. The NFTs at issue here were pretty darn close to virtual copies of uh, Hermes's Birkin bags. I think the principal difference was in, instead of animal-type fabrics, whether it be crocodile, ostrich, or cows, they were covered with sort of a fur, fluffy fur, purportedly to make some sort of statement about animal abuse, I think. So I can imagine NFTs that are far more creative than that. But the key thing to remember here, it, it wasn't the image This was not a copyright case. The problem was the use of the trademark name Birkin. Now, the defendant, Mr. Rothschild, did change the name a little bit to Meta Birkin, but the plaintiff, Hermes, introduced a lot of evidence of consumer confusion that was sufficient to overcome the insertion of that prefix, Meta Birkin. And that's the real problem here, is using the trademark name. If he had simply posted NFTs under some new creative name that he came up with, the Rothschild bag, perhaps, this might never have gone to court. You know, I keep reading that this loss may have a chilling effect on artists who want to use trademarks in their NFT projects, but shouldn't it? I mean, artists shouldn't be infringing on trademarks. So we have had... Trademark laws in this country since the late 19th century, the specific statute we now have, the Lanham Act, I believe was passed in 1954. So that's going on 70 years of existing with trademarks in the real world and 70 years of experience. And although from time to time you hear people complain about a chilling effect on First Amendment rights, we really haven't seen any of that. And that's a lot of experience. I don't see why that changes simply because you're creating digital images to put into this metaverse. I simply do not believe that enforcement of the trademark laws create any sort of uh, chilling effect on First Amendment rights. So I really don't buy that argument. And I think it's disproved by um, many, many decades of history. 
I don't think Hermes was in this for the money necessarily, but the jury only awarded $133,000 in damages, which is relatively low. The plaintiff, Hermes, only asked for about $250,000. So the jury gave them a portion of that. The trademark infringement cases don't typically result in significant damage awards. Now, part of the specific reason here is that Mr. Rothschild just didn't sell that many. I think the evidence at trial was he sold 55.2 of these NFTs. And so he just didn't generate that much profit. And the key in the trademark area is what the plaintiff, the trademark owner, gets is a disgorgement of the um, ill-gotten gains from the infringer. So there's a cap on it to start with. Um, Now, what we are going to see here is a post-trial motion for attorney's fees, and those could be substantial. And I don't know whether the court will grant them, but that is where the real hit on Mr. Rothschild could come from. But I think when you look at this holistically, this case was never about recovering damages. This case was about protecting the brand, the Birkin trademark. Hermes apparently has specific plans in the metaverse, as, as many fashion houses do, to start introducing their own NFTs. And it needed this sort of trademark protection to extend to the metaverse. And so this was a case about setting a precedent. And I think they've been very successful in doing that. Are we going to learn anything more when Judge Rakoff uh, weighs in during the post-trial motions? Yeah, we might learn a little bit more. Um, It it would be possible for him here to simply say, uh, I'm denying the motion by defendants. Um, uh, The jury verdict stands. Um, Jury verdicts are accorded great weight, even in post-trial motions. And so... He might simply punt on it and let it go straight up to the Second Circuit in that form. But then again, he he tends to write in his decisions. And um, so we may may still learn something more specifically about uh, how he now views the applicability of the Rogers test after this sort of advisory opinion from the jury that they did not regard this to be artistic works. So I understand that fashion brands are, like Louis Vuitton, filing trademark applications for design marks covering digital content, including NFTs. Um, will that help fashion brands in the future in pursuing these kinds of claims? Yes. Um, a registered trademark um, provides a brand owner with certain uh, procedural advantages, um, as well as the right to obtain attorney's fees um, in, in a lawsuit. So there are advantages of that. Um, it is theoretically possible for um, a trademark owner to proceed uh, under um, without a registration um, under a theory of um, unfair competition. Um, but I think the advantage here is to get the registration. It should not be a difficult thing to do. Um, and to have the full panoply then of trademark um, claims and remedies available. And I understand what trademark infringement is and what trademark dilution is. What is cyber squatting? 
So cyber squatting is where um, a defendant um, uses a URL um, that incorporates or at least causes confusion with respect to a trademark. And so I do not specifically know what URL he was, Mr. Rothschild was using here. But I assume in order to sell these in the metaverse, he had to have a website. And if the website was www.metaburkin.com, well, that would set him up for a cause of action for um, cyber squatting. Um, the claim from Hermes would be, well, we own the trademark for Birkin, and therefore um, we are entitled to um, claim and own any um, URL that includes or incorporates that trademark. All right. Thanks so much for your insights, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Camp Lejeune litigation could turn out to be the largest case in U.S. history, with estimates of as many as 500,000 claims being filed. Lawyers across the country have spent millions of dollars and thousands of hours preparing lawsuits on behalf of military veterans and their families exposed to toxic water at Camp Lejeune. Now a rule in North Carolina federal court threatens to throw that work into chaos. Joining me is Roy Strom, correspondent for Bloomberg Law. Start by telling us a little about these Camp Lejeune cases, you know, the background. Sure. So Camp Lejeune is a Marine Corps base in North Carolina. And all the way back in 1982, the Marine Corps discovered water at the base had been contaminated. Uh, The contaminated wells were shut down in 1985 but there were, by some estimates, over a million Marines, family members, civilian staff, and others who used the water between the 1950s and the 1980s. And that water has been linked to all kinds of cancers and other diseases and a lot of trouble with birth defects or stillbirth. And there was a long effort, a lot of it done by the Marines themselves, to get compensation for the illnesses caused by being subjected to this water. And last year, Congress passed and President Biden signed a law that allowed veterans to bring these claims. What's the process they have to go through? Lawyers uh, who represent these clients first have to file a claim, a sort of administrative claim with the Navy Um, which is given six months to either offer a settlement or somehow resolve the claim with every individual client. And if that doesn't happen, either because the Navy denies the claim or because the claimant is uh, dissatisfied with whatever offer is on the table, they're then allowed to file a 
federal lawsuit, basically a tort claim against the federal government, and it has to be filed in a North Carolina federal court, which is expected to be hearing tens of thousands of these cases. Some estimates are that there will be as many as 500,000 lawsuits ultimately filed. So I think we've all seen, anyone who watches TV has seen these ads of lawyers appealing to Camp Lejeune victims to hire them. Are plaintiffs' lawyers involved in a kind of competition to represent these victims? Yeah, certainly there is a very large number of plaintiffs' lawyers who are interested in taking on these cases. And the way that they find those claimants is sort of the underlying process and the business behind that is what I have been reporting on. And it's not necessarily a new industry, a new business, but it's become much more sophisticated and streamlined and has attracted sort of new types of institutional asset managers who view investing in Camp Lejeune and in other what are called mass tort claims, typically a lot of you know pharmaceutical drugs that were later found to cause problems. These investors ultimately finance the advertisements. They pay for the ads to run and they generate a return based on either how the case ends up or sometimes through a sort of more traditional loan type of product to law firms. You write about a group of 16 plaintiffs who filed their claims and argued that they didn't have to first go through the administrative process. Tell us about that case. Yeah, so this is an interesting aspect of it where, like I mentioned, the the cases are required by law to be filed in North Carolina, where Camp Lejeune, of course, is. You know, there's veterans who, who were at this base in the 80s who live all around the country now. And certainly the, the lawyers who are advertising on TV don't all live in North Carolina. Many of them are in Texas or pretty much anywhere. And so a law firm brought a group of cases early in North Carolina without going through that administrative process. They basically argued they had done that before in trying to get compensation through uh, the Navy under a different program. And what was interesting about that effort was that the federal judge came back to them and said, you need to explain why you shouldn't be, you being the lawyers, need to explain why you shouldn't be thrown off of this case because you've, in essence, violated a local rule in that court that allows lawyers who are from out of state, who aren't part of the North Carolina bar, to only bring three unrelated cases in any given year. So they were faced with the prospect of basically having done all this work to get all these clients. This particular law firm says they represent over a thousand clients, I mean, thousands of clients. And here's a judge saying, perhaps the only lawyers who are going to be allowed to do this work are those who are from North Carolina, which, of course, relatively small state in the grand scheme of the U.S. legal system. Is the lawsuit one lawsuit where 16 plaintiffs are asking for a class action, or is it 
more than one lawsuit. In that case, I believe it was something like eight lawsuits. Maybe one or some of them had multiple plaintiffs involved. But it was a, it was a group of lawsuits that were brought, like I say, by this out-of-state law firm. And in a more traditional mass tort case, what happens is they, they all get bundled up into one giant case. It's usually called a multi-district litigation and you file the claims as part of the multi-district litigation. But in that scenario, it's pretty clear that that's a related case, or you wouldn't be considered sort of violating a, a rule by appearing or representing multiple clients in this multi-district litigation. Now, the Camp Lejeune litigation isn't a multi-district litigation, and it's sort of unclear administratively how it's ultimately going to be handled. Most of these lawsuits have not been filed yet because that six-month administrative lag period is sort of still playing out for the vast majority, if not all the claims that have been filed already. So this idea of a three-plaintiff limit is certainly not enforced yet. The judge in that case ultimately didn't rule on how he was going to interpret this local rule. But the attorneys who were asked to explain themselves basically made two arguments. One was these cases are related, similar to the way that, like I mentioned, a multi-district litigation would be. They should be considered basically one appearance, no matter how many of these similar Camp Lejeune claims we filed. And then two, they said there's a good cause exception for allowing them to represent these clients in North Carolina. And for that argument, they basically said a few things. One being, look, it's the clients who chose us, and we don't think it's right to disregard the client's choice of who they want as their attorney. And secondly, among a litany of arguments, they said basically, you know, we're a very experienced law firm. We've handled many of these types of mass tort cases. We've invested in basically a sort of infrastructure at our law firm that gives really quick service and responses to our clients. And... On top of that, many of our lawyers are sort of highly regarded. One of the statistics they point out is some majority or near majority of their partners had been U.S. Supreme Court clerks, which in the legal system is sort of a a big deal. In the end, would it put the courts in the position of judging who are the best lawyers to handle these cases? So that is a possibility. And it's one that in some ways, a couple of other law firms have sort of hinted at advocating for or hinted at thinking should be the process. When the North Carolina judge asked this law firm about why it shouldn't be removed for violating this rule, there were at least two other firms who came in. They weren't implicated by the order itself, but they wanted to have their voices heard. One was a local North Carolina law firm that said, in essence, judges should go on a sort of case-by-case basis to make sure that the sort of best law firms are representing clients in these cases. A similar argument was made by a law firm uh, that's actually been pivotal in getting this law passed. It's called the Bell Law Group. Their main partner there, Ed Bell, was one of the first lawyers really involved in this effort. He brought a class action uh, years ago that was 
thrown out and which ultimately led to this law that was passed last year. His law firm made a sort of similar argument, which was that the court should play a role in making sure that the best of the best lawyers were involved representing these clients. People might look at these cases, and it seems as if, especially from the ads, as if it's almost automatic compensation. But the lawyers that you spoke to, especially one uh, Mona Lisa Wallace in North Carolina, said these are more difficult than ordinary tort cases. I don't know if she said they're more difficult than ordinary tort cases, but she said certainly they require a lot of work. She has a team of lawyers working you know, sort of around the clock or 10 hours a day on these cases. They're developing expert testimonies. I mean, these are very sick clients in a lot of instances. And she told me that they've begun to take early depositions, basically interviewing clients about their experiences at the base and the illnesses they've, they've suffered. And they're doing it earlier than they normally would in the process because they basically fear that these plaintiffs won't be alive to see this process through. Uh, and so as part of that, they, they're opening uh, estates for these plaintiffs uh, to, to allow their family members to file and receive these claims. And so she was saying that, like you say, a lot of people view these cases maybe because of this sort of runaway advertising as a sort of cash grab. But she says that they require a lot of work and that Law firms are working, uh, she put it, a thousand times harder than the general public recognizes. How is the question of the outside counsel, counsel outside North Carolina, going to be resolved? You know, it's really kind of up in the air at this point. I'm not sure if it's an active question on any sort of docket at the moment. It's something that I think either the North Carolina federal court will have to make a decision on as a group or perhaps individual judges might determine how they'll handle their cases uh, if, if these cases aren't all bundled into one. It's kind of a uh, symptom of the fact that a lot of the process for how this huge, huge litigation will play out sort of remains to be seen. And so the question is sort of still open. I don't think A lot of uh, people in the legal industry would say it's sort of best practice to limit these cases to to North Carolina attorneys and and even uh, North Carolina lawyers, uh, such as Mona Lisa Wallace. They're not advocating for such a blanket rule against out-of-state lawyers being allowed exceptions to this. So... It seems unlikely that that would happen. Of course, it could, but I spoke with one attorney who was, you know, considering all this, and and they told me, you know, if sort of worse comes to worse, we could have someone at this firm or or this attorney themselves take the North Carolina State Bar exam. (laughs) Uh, Speaking from experience, no one wants to take a a bar exam after they're out of school that long. (laughs) That's what this lawyer said, that maybe it wouldn't be them who did it, but Maybe they could find somebody in the firm who had the time or the willingness to to sit for it. I know you'll be keeping track of this issue. Thanks so much, Roy. That's Bloomberg Law correspondent Roy Strom. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.